Welcome to The Art of Range, a podcast focused on rangelands and the people who manage them. I'm your host, Tip Hudson, range and livestock specialist with Washington State University Extension. The goal of this podcast is education and conservation through conversation. Find us online at artofrange.com. Welcome back to The Art of Range. My guest today is Dick Kuhn. Uh, Dick is a rancher in eastern Washington who has been doing this for a little while and knows a thing or two. And we're going to be visiting about livestock risk protection insurance, uh, which Dick has a little bit of experience with. Uh, Dick, welcome. Thank you, Tip. I'm uh, honored to be on your recording. Well, we have listeners that are all over the place and some may be not as familiar with what livestock production looks like in eastern Washington. Uh, Can you describe your operation, are you a cow-calf producer, stalker, uh, seed stock, and, and where are you at? Let's describe, in general, your ranching operation. We're a commercial cow-calf operation located about 30 miles south of Ritzville, and we have a split herd. In other words, we have cows that calve both in March and then again in uh, September, basically, and have run that pattern for oh, nearly 40 years. And what kind of what kind of plant communities are you uh, utilizing? You know, people sometimes have dry rangeland plus irrigated pasture plus, uh, you know, various kinds of leased ground and public land. What's your main forage base? We are in the, are in the middle of the channeled scab lands. And basically what that means is the Missoula flood stripped our soil off and sent it to the Pacific about 14,000 years ago. So we're dealing with a lot of rock, exposed rock. And uh, there's some low-lying ground that might have alkali flats, uh, salt grass, uh, tall wheat grass, uh, some other species like that. But most of the upland is uh, or was blue bunch wheat grass, but it's now uh, a lot of cheat grass, June grass. And, of course, we're dealing with invasive species like Medusa head. But the stocking rates in this area typically are... 25 to 30 acres for a pair for a growing season. Yeah, that sounds about right. Uh, I was going to ask, what are the main financial risks that you've experienced over a lifetime of ranching? But maybe a better first question is, what do you see as the main risks to the sustainability of a cow-calf ranching operation? And is financial risk at the top of that list? Or is it other things like uh, environmental variability or all the above? I know we only have a half an hour, so I'll try and edit that as much as I can. Um, you know, it, it shifts uh, so often and so dramatically, it almost leaves you breathless. Within the last year, all of a sudden, interest rates have become the, the biggest thing. And we're putting that on top of a multi-year drought, uh, which has made it difficult. Um, and uh, we can we can deal with uh, the weather uh, issues. That's that's nothing new. Although as it's gotten drier and drier, uh, we've lost the the creek which runs through the middle of the cattle part of the operation, and so haven't been able to irrigate out of the creek at all. Which from thirty years ago, where we irrigated two hundred and sixty acres out of the creek, now we're not able to do anything. And uh, 
that's changed the nature of the operation. Fortunately, we bought a hay ranch about 30 years ago that's deep well irrigated, and those wells seem to be irrigate, uh, holding up all right. So we we not only raise enough hay for our own needs, but we sell a lot of export hay and, and horse hay off the, the hay operation. So that is that diversification has stood us in good stead in that way. And what would you say have been the main financial risks associated with ranching, specifically in this part of the world? You know, we've always been pretty flexible about our marketing. Uh, we learned really early on that we weren't uh, comfortable just taking calves when they're weaned and, and running them through a sale yard and taking whatever the market happened to be at the time it was convenient to sell them. So we early on started retaining ownership. We were performance testing at the time and doing a lot of AI and wanted to see what our own calves would do. And so uh, that countercyclical nature of the fall calving proved to be uh, something that uh, gave us a lot of strength and flexibility. And even if we decided not to retain ownership, we were still moving those calves uh, at, at weaning time or, or yearling time when somebody else wasn't. It also uh, had the same effect with uh, cold cows. 15 to 20% of a ranch's income is their cold cows. And uh, if they're going at a different time. And then uh, the flexibility of having that hay operation, uh, which basically we bought to provide hay for our own cows because a fall calving cow will eat basically twice as much alfalfa over a winter as a spring calving cow. Um, we were able to put uh, poorer quality, uh, rained on hay, new seedings, things that weren't quite as marketable through our own cows. Um, so that's those those decisions gave us a little bit more flexibility um, with the with the marketing that a lot of people have to deal with. I don't think I've ever done the same thing twice in a market in, in a marketing cycle. Uh, the, the conditions are always different. Um, our feed conditions are always different. And uh, I've always focused on having the ability to um, make decisions based on maximizing what I got out of those cattle and not being forced to sell them when it wasn't convenient. And I guess that's a good segue into the LRP program, huh? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the purpose of LRP is to reduce some of that marketing risk. Uh, and you answered one of my potential questions, which was, you know, what have you tried separate from insurance products to manage financial risk? And you answered some of that. But uh, as somebody who has used LRP, LRP, how does that fit in in a situation where you're already being pretty flexible in order to maximize your marketing opportunities? My dad's family came from back east, and consequently, quite a few of my relatives are still in that part of the country. And I was complaining about cattle prices one time, and one of them said, well, you know, why don't you just raise the prices on your product, Dick? <laughs> and, you know, we laugh at that, but that's really the basic uh, uh, reason that people get into vertical integration, right? Because it allows them to maintain the control of that product a little bit further down the, the line and try and enhance her uh, ability to make a buck on the product. And um, when we have, uh, when we are presented with the uh, 
opportunity to insure those cattle, it took me about 0.3 seconds to recognize that uh, it was a huge benefit without all of the risk involved with using the futures market. Plus, it's a subsidized program. And uh, it allowed me to put a floor into those calves, um, basically, if I wanted to, uh, shortly after they were born. And with uh, the split herd, I had several different groups that I would be marketing through the year. And I was able to uh, develop some charts that showed when those particular that particular group would be reaching certain weights at certain time. And it would kept me prompted to want to start looking at insurance. And then the last couple of years when the insurance uh, program has, um, I guess, become more, uh, a lot more attractive by raising the subsidy level. And also we don't have to pay that premium uh, up front. It's, it was still mm-hmm. an advantage before that, but this, this really makes it, uh, uh, I guess you'd say it's a no brainer to, uh, not take advantage of that program. You mentioned that you used LRP before those rules changed. How long have you uh, been using LRP? Boy, I think probably seven or eight years, uh, just about the time it became available. We were using the rainfall insurance prior to that. Uh, we started on that program the second year. It was available in Washington about 2011, I think. And um, just based on the uh, ease of use and the concept, I guess, of the rainfall insurance, I was an easy sell on the livestock risk protection. Mm -hmm. How many years out of those seven or eight uh, have you had to, to run an insurance claim where you got something back? I mean, sort of like most insurances, your hope is that you don't end up needing it to pay out because it means that you got a good price for calves. How many times has the market caught you where, you know, it lined up that uh, you received a payment back from your premiums paid out? Not very often. I'd say two or three times. And sometimes it hasn't been much, maybe enough to get the premium back. But I never had the um, notion that it was anything other than an, an insurance policy, right? So right. the the little spreadsheet that I use, I, I put a calculation in there how much the market needs to drop to in order to pay for that premium, right? So at the time that I'm buying the 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 policy, I can see right there that if the let's say the market's two oh six on those uh, seven and a half weight calves in next May, um, <clears throat> if it drops to 202, then I've made that premium back. And um, as long as you keep looking at it as a floor and not a, a hedge uh, or, a, or a potential uh, additional moneymaker, um, it's, it's very mm-hmm. useful. Yeah. In order to figure out where that price point is, what kinds of uh, financial records, both internal and then I guess industry figures are you using to decide uh, how to use LRP and, and what you're locking in as a price that you're insuring against? Well, we use uh, cattle facts that we've been uh, members of for years. Uh, 
I will call their advisors and and get a feel for what the market is. And they're they're not only able to tell me what the market is, but they can um, skew it toward the Northwest, which is the important thing because we seem to be a little bit different than the rest of the country. Um, one other thing besides looking at the local markets is uh, the feeder that I use is uh, very open about uh, telling me what's going on on his end. And I can bounce ideas off of him when we talk about running a, a break even and deciding whether we're going whether we're going to feed cattle or not. Mm-hmm. Going back just a little bit, um, I wanted to get your opinion on to what extent you feel like financial risks are a major factor in whether or not a ranch is able to stay afloat over the long haul. And part of what I'm thinking is it's sort of in the same way that environmentally, you know, you may have uh, a really bad drought year where you end up with uh, significant overgrazing if somebody doesn't adjust their stocking rate or grazing timing. Sort of in the same way, you can have a really bad financial year and, and one that's really bad may be the nail in the coffin that means a person can't, you know, pay back their operating loan or, you know, sets them back far enough that they um, feel like they have to sell. To what extent do you think those financial pressures are the main sources of that? Or is it more, you know, broad problems like, you know, inability to come up with a succession plan and nobody's got it's a local rancher can't afford to buy your place or you don't have someone to take it over for you. To what extent is you know, these financial pressures the main driver compared to other things that might cause somebody to sell out? I think the kind of things that you describe are with us all the time. Um, I'm just turning 71 and my brother's just turning 65. Now we're fortunate because my son Paul is in the in the middle of the operation but we really don't have anybody lined up to operate that hay ranch if uh, if my brother goes away or, or decides to retire. So, yeah, our, our thinking has been more towards um, if we have grandsons or, or uh, other, other people in the family that um, could come in and step up. Um, just like every other business right now, labor's uh, almost non-existent. And then to get somebody to do the kind of work that we do in agriculture is even tougher. Um, the margins that we have on a day-to-day basis are uh, small enough that um, we don't have cash reserves like some businesses do uh, and, and are able to withstand those uh insults. Um, and we've struggled mm-hmm. with, um, breakdowns. Um, we're trying to buy a tractor right now, for instance, cause we had one that blew up on us and, uh, that's a long-term, uh, piece of machinery that we expect to, uh, get our money back out of. But, uh, all of a sudden we're looking at 9% interest on an equipment loan where mm-hmm. the last time we did something like that, it was 3%. Um, and we are more mechanized than we used to be just because of uh, the needs of labor and the, the volume of material that we produce. Uh, we have to have good equipment and, and of course, a hay operation. The stuff has to be done on a timely basis. Uh, 
things like having a uh, an ace mechanic like my son is maybe one of the best things is that this ranch has going for it because we're so mi- uh, machinery intensive. Um, Thirty years ago, we had a couple little wheel tractors and a uh, and a horse. You know, now we've got far far more complicated equipment just to do the kind of work we do. But we've also we're also producing far more product and a higher gross income than we ever thought was possible. Mm-hmm. Do you have any other sources of income besides the cows? The the hay operation is uh, actually most years a little bit more uh, uh, gross income higher than the cattle. But yeah. then that, that changes, you know, if I all of a sudden retain two classes of calves and push that income, you know, it can be some wild swings from year to year, just depending on how I market the, the cattle. Yeah. I'm actually not trying to sell insurance, but, uh, as repeat listeners will know this grant, the current grant is funded by, uh, the, Western Center for Risk Management under the a block of grants that are for producers underserved by crop insurance. And so we're just trying to help people figure out how and whether uh, to use some of these insurance products and, and, and how they fit into the bigger picture of trying to make ranches financially viable. Uh, are there, so you would, you would say that LRP has helped reduce some of the risk, even though nothing's going to be a silver bullet. Yeah. As, uh, as managers, we need to take advantage of every risk, uh, mitigation that we can. It's not, it's, uh, it's sort of like having a, a good fence to keep the cows from getting on the railroad. Right. Um, if you have a chance to cut down on the single biggest variable that you have is when to market that calf crop. And for most guys with a single herd, You've got one shot at it that year. Maybe you're going to cull some heifers or, and cull cows, but that crop of steers typically is the roll of the dice, right? And so mm-hmm. uh, any discussions that people have at their meetings or their coffee shops revolve around what you do with your calves. The days are gone when we had five or six guys calling up and or driving into the ranch to see what we were going to do with our calves. So we've had to become more sophisticated in using either uh, special feeder sales or retaining ownership or uh, a lot of guys have gone to video sales, um, but you're still uh, setting a target date for when that animal is going to go to market. And uh, why not look ahead in the, on, the, on the LRP and take advantage of the fact that you know about and then you've got a wide range on that LRP too. It's uh, what is it, sixty days? I think when those mm-hmm. calves actually go to market. So you can, you've got all the flexibility in the world about when those calves are going to go. And you watch the futures market and um, start to get uh, get a twitch in the back of your neck, like you ought to pull the trigger and do something and call call your insurance agent and uh, get a pro, uh, premium or a policy going how i operate and uh, it's been a, it's been a big peace of mind i wish we had something similar in the hay market to tell you the truth um mm. you've got a lot more variables in the quality of the product probably in hay and maybe it wouldn't be practical but um 
there aren't any guarantees. And I suppose if you're selling widgets, you know, you've got a, a market variables and supplies chain video variables that are just as uh, um, stressful. Volatile. Yeah. Yeah. In the commodity business, like we're at, it's been the single biggest thing. You're a price taker, right? And if you can um, come up with something like the LRP to uh, minimize that uh, uh, danger point of of having to move those calves on a day when the markets uh, and we've all seen that like the market creeps up, then all of a sudden crash. Well, if you're going that at the wrong time, that's a big hit. Mm-hmm. You've probably heard the quote from President John F. Kennedy, who said, "The farmer is the only man in our economy who buys everything at retail, sells everything at wholesale, and pays the freight both ways." It's a. You would think we would have some way to incentivize food production. Uh, you know where, where that is. I think it's becoming increasingly obvious that that's critical, not just to the health of a society, but to national security. Exactly. And I, I'm glad you said that because I was thinking the same thing and uh, that um, our business for a long time had held uh, government programs at kind of arm's length, right? Uh, wheat farmers, sure. for instance, were early on to sign up for different uh, uh, programs that would help ease their uh, risk. But um, when you look at it, like you mentioned, uh, food security is in the interest of our country, the the kind of production that we are able to do with the resources that we can muster with the, between family or in our own uh, sacrifice of our own um, time, um, which is what we want. We knew what we were going to get when we went into it, right? But um, it's a huge deal. You, you couldn't hire very many people to do what we do with the resources that we have. And we put up with it because we enjoy the lifestyle. We enjoy the independence and we enjoy having our dogs. <laughs> no, that's, that's interesting. But part of why I think it's interesting is that you have this sense from uh, the general public. I realize there's no such thing as the general public, but people that are not involved in agriculture and are not living near an agricultural community or economy uh, have this idea that farmers are all rich. and But the vast majority of at least uh, you know cow-calf producers that I know are in a situation like yours. It's a family-owned business and the margins are tight and you're not making anywhere near you know what you could make for the expertise you have in, in some other sector. And for years, the rate of return on investment on farming in general has been about three to five percent and people do it because they believe in it and feel like it's a uh, it, it's a a social good a public good that is necessary and somebody's got to do it uh, but it does seem that it does seem that somehow it ought to be more profitable than it is yeah you'd you'd hope so uh at, at my age i'm starting to see the um the wonder of being able to bring not only kids into the operation, but my grandchildren and watch them enjoy this kind of work and see the benefits of being out in, in the working with livestock and being out in the, in the open. Um, and it's, uh, it balances out the fact that you're tied to the, uh, tied to the land, you're tied to the 
life cycle the livestock. You don't have time to go to uh, vacation very often or those kind of things. But um, anything you can do to enhance your ability to stick with it uh, is something that's worth pursuing. And whether it's whether it's uh, insurance in the form of LRP or the rainfall insurance or um, uh, opportunities to diversify. Um, uh, we're, uh, fortunate that we're large enough that, that we haven't had to work off the, the ranch to, uh, to maintain, a, uh, the lifestyle or income. Uh, sometimes it probably would have been a good, good idea, but, uh, to enhance the income by doing something else. But just the fact that you have that volume of work that just needs to be done to maintain has made that really uh, impractical. And then of course we're, we're out in the middle of nowhere too. Um, it's not like we can take off and go work, you know, 10 miles away at, at work weekends at an elevator or something, you know, uh, um, and I guess that's, that's good. You know, nothing works without incentive and we're no different. Just a couple of quick final questions on LRP. I, I think you've confirmed my feeling that one of the main purposes in this is to avoid a really, really bad year that, that pushes you over the edge uh, financially. But, but it brings up another question. Under, under what circumstances would you or would you recommend to someone uh, not use LRP? It sounds like you've mostly used it believing that the whole point of the program is that uh, some of these market risks are volatile, and so there's benefit in in having it specifically because you don't know what's going to happen, and you get these uh, what do they call them black swan events where something totally unexpected happens and the market crashes, even though all of the market fundamentals would have been you know leaning toward a pretty reliable prediction of good prices. Uh, you know, we seem to be in one of those positions right now where all of the signals are saying the cattle market ought to be good. Uh, but um, if I was a reporter, I'd say, so are you going to buy LRP this year? Oh, that's a great point. And you're exactly right. Every one of the signals that we get, uh, whether it's uh, heifer retention, the, the continuation of the drought in the Great Plains, uh, the continuing um, uh raise it rise in uh, uh interest cost fuel all of the competing uh uh needs for for farmland or ranch land pressure that's all of those sorts of things regulations of course is always at the top of the list you think man right now uh i couldn't look at anything more positive about being in the cattle business particularly in the northwest where we've got not only the feed but we've got uh adequate uh, slaughter capacity um but <laughs> there's always that black swan event, like you mentioned, Tip. Um, we're looking at uh, regulators right now that are talking about uh, uh, putting cool back in place, uh, country of origin labeling, um, messing with uh, uh, the way we market cattle. Um, all of those kind of things can end up backfiring on us. And if we go into a recession or, or if we're not in one already, um, who knows how, uh, how that'll affect things. So, uh, beef demands has stayed unbelievably high, not only export, but domestic. And 
there's lots of reasons for that to uh, continue, but it, it's so um, tenuous that one single uh, animal health event or a, an import event could tip it all over. And so I guess what I'm trying to say is the no matter how rosy things look, that's probably when you should double down with the with the insurance and making sure that you've got um, your your bills paid and your operating loan as low as you can get. And uh, just so uh, you're ready, because that seems to be the pattern. Look at uh, 2014, you know, how many people thought that that was going to continue. Right. Now, it does seem like there's some similarities to, you know, a period, say, back in the 1970s when uh, interest rates were high and going up and bankers and lawyers were telling ranchers that, Maybe continuing it isn't your best option, but many of them did anyway. Yeah, it's an interesting time. And it, it, you know, at one point, there was a fairly predictable cattle cycle. And I remember, uh, I think it was Harlan Hughes doing some uh, financial talks with ranchers saying, you want to be, you want to be counter cyclical, you know, when everybody else is holding animals back uh, because of good prices, you want to sell because that's when you can make money on them instead of, you know, buying buying high and selling low, you try to work against it. But it seems like that cycle has been disrupted or, or the cattle price cycles have been driven by things other than, uh, you know, cattle inventory for some time. Yeah, absolutely true. And then how many times have we seen uh, the, the industry turn around on a dime uh, almost uh, – almost literally i mean nothing compared to what the the poultry people can do but you think oh boy cattle numbers are low cattle numbers are low but as soon as the right price signals in there all of a sudden we're creating um lots more beef uh we're so efficient we're doing it obviously with less cows than we had but now uh the dairy industry's figured out how to uh, use sex semen and use beef bulls on their on their cows and that's a huge amount of uh, high quality beef coming out of an industry which was basically hamburger for most of my career anyway. And all of a sudden now it's a big component of the beef industry. How do you uh, how do you uh, protect yourself against those kind of things? And they can change their breeding on a on a dime. Well, I think we'll probably leave it there, uh, Dick. I really appreciate your time today, and. In particular, thank you for talking about money, which is something that people often don't want to talk about. Uh, and and thank you for doing a good job producing food and managing land. Well, my pleasure, Tip. I really enjoyed the visit. Thank you for listening to the Art of Range podcast. You can subscribe to and review the show through iTunes or your favorite podcasting app so you never miss an episode. Just search for Art of Range. If you have questions or comments for us to address in a future episode, send an email to show at artofrange.com. For articles and links to resources mentioned in the podcast, please see the show notes at artofrange.com. Listener feedback is important to the success of our mission, empowering rangeland managers. Please take a moment to fill out a brief survey at artofrange.com. 
This podcast is produced by Connors Communications in the College of Agricultural, Human, and Natural Resource Sciences at Washington State University. The project is supported by the University of Arizona and funded by the Western Center for Risk Management Education through the USDA National Institute of Food and Agriculture. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed by guests of this podcast are their own and does not imply Washington State University's endorsement. Thank you.